0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today.
1: June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder.
2: There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S., and each week we focus on their stories. This is CBS Ion on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs reporting for ConnectingVets.com, the military news and veteran lifestyle website, and our guest today is in support of uh, Women's History Month, but really the history that women are making in the past, the present, and the future. Allison Jazlo joins us today. She's an Iraq War veteran, dedicated public servant, and an advocate for the views and experiences of combat veterans and their families. Nationally, she's not new to the game. Jazlo is recognized as a leading voice on the impact of the military-civilian divide on our political system and as an authority on the unique challenges faced by women in the military. As we'll hear, she's a former army captain and is a seasoned political and communications strategist serving on the staff of several members of Congress as a White House communications aide. And she's a former executive director of the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, which we're pleased to announce just just within the last month, she's been named the CEO of the IAVA. So with all of that and a lot to talk about in the future, let's welcome Allison Jaslow. How are you, Allison?
3: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Phil.
2: You've been on my list, by the way, of people that I've always wanted to talk to in the veteran community because, you know, I've seen you pop up on the network news. I've seen you as a spokesperson, but really, you know, you've always had some strong things to say, never backed away from some tough issues. And it dawned on me that as many times as I've seen you speaking on, you know, the news networks. I don't know much about you and your history. So tell me, let's dive in a little bit about your military history. Tell me about what it was like to be Captain Jaslow for the greatest army in the world.
3: Uh, Phil, I consider myself the only success story I know of um, from career day. So when I was in eighth grade, we did career day field trips. Um, As one would do when they're 13, I picked all the places that I thought were going to be fun or where I got some food or some tchotchke to take home with me. Um, but I was voluntold to go to Fort Myer uh, Military Base, which is the military base that's connected to Arlington National Cemetery, and was swept off my feet. I think it's when I found my calling to serve my country, but also connected with the deep love of country that I have. Um, and then from that day forward, envisioned my service to country in uniform. So it was the plan from when I was 13 uh, to serving the army. And I thought for a career at that point, um, the dream was at the time we didn't have a, uh, a woman four-star general. Um, this is uh, late nineties. I graduated high school in 2000. Um, so that was the, that was the childhood dream that, that made me want to pursue um, going to school on an ROTC scholarship. Um, and then ultimately I was, uh, you know, a sophomore in high school when 9-11 happened. Uh, that, of course, changed the trajectory of my service in addition to many people who were, you know, either in the uniform at that point or on a pathway uh to be into the service like I was in ROTC or, you know, my fellow officers who were at uh, West Point at the time. A year later, we decided to go in, into Iraq. And so, again, had the opportunity to then serve in Iraq um when I was in uh the United States Army. I got sworn in in 2004 by the time. Thanksgiving of that year, I actually deployed um, the day after Thanksgiving and found myself in Kuwait, uh, preparing to go north into Iraq. I served as a logistics officer Um, during that deployment. We very quickly became the multifunctional logisticians, um, and what was a warehousing mission became a force force protection mission, did gun trucks or convoy security for the rest of that deployment, Uh, swung back to Fort Carson for about a year uh, the following October, and then January 2000, I deployed again and served in Iraq uh, for 15 months during the surge before deciding to change my life stream or reimagine it um, and transitioned out of the military and, you know, then walked a path that has led me to now be the CEO of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America.
2: So much I want to say, Uh I'll just say I'm taken with the fact that the spark of interest to be in the military came pre 9-11 when you were really, really young. That's, that's especially rare considering, you know, I mean, I spent my time in the 90s in the Navy and all my friends, you know, nobody thought of military service. It was pre 9-11. Everyone was like, why are you in the Navy, dude? You should be working dot com. Everyone's making money off this thing called the Internet. And here you were the formative years going into high school and you'd already been inspired to want to serve. That's, that's hella cool. Um Something I always want to ask, what did you know, what were takeaways from your deployments to Iraq? Um, you know, with a couple of them there. And I know that surge era was pivotal because we were having to sort of, you know, bring in tons and tons of resources into a war that was ongoing and we were changing as you know we were building the plane while we were flying it at times as a logistics officer i always think about like the safety and security of you know the supply officer on my aircraft carrier i mean he just ordered things it seemed administrative in nature but in a kinetic environment like war you know not only were the convoys not safe but you know the very nature of being there wasn't always safe what was it like for a woman were there nuances and specific things you noticed about that deployment that you were like hey this should be different,
3: you know. I've thought a lot about my experience as a woman um, in the military. Kind of in in my advocate, so like wearing my advocate hat, if 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 that makes sense. Um, when you step up to, you know, see in twenty seventeen, I was the face of IAVA's, um She Who worn the battle campaign, um, and it was my job to use my voice to advocate on behalf of the millions of. Uh, women veterans in our country uh, and service members too uh, who are still serving today, having to do that really challenged me to sort of think about my own experience. And I have to say that my personal experience was a little more about just sort of coping and wanting to see, be seen as one of the guys. And so there's a lot of stuff that I think I, I just blinded myself to for the sake of being the best officer, the best leader that I could be in the eyes of both my soldiers and, um, you know, my leadership. You know, I will say in retrospect, there was a lot of, uh, you know, probably equipment that could have been and, and has been updated, um, but that could have been fashioned a little better for a, you know, female body type. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, if I'm going to speak about my personal experience, like, I feel like I had a a greater ability than most women to kind of sort of like grit through everything. And so, you know, I will tell you, I try to use one of the things that motivates me in my advocacy work is I I know I have a certain type of strength um, and I want to use that strength to not just like, (laughs) you know, I feel like some people who are, stronger in the herd, just try to like get ahead all by themselves. I use, I want to use that same strength to lift other people up. And so I don't know why I'm built the way that I'm built. Um, but getting the opportunity to learn about other women's experiences and being able to use my voice and my experience and competencies to advocate on their behalf is something that sort of inspires my life's work today.
2: And I feel you there because while I wasn't part of the surge, I was, I was a, a crew member on the very first integrated co-ed aircraft carrier. And I would imagine that our first deployment, our first usage of the ship, you know, Mm. we taught them how best to build this carrier through efficiencies that they hadn't planned for. You know, where do you put, you know, where do you put the bathrooms? Where do you put the head? How often do they need to be in a certain area? You know, do you want part of your crew to have to walk an extraordinary long mile just to go use the facilities uh, or do you have to change the layout of the ship in order to make it optimal for two genders? And I think they learned from us. Did you see case examples of how the DOD and how the military was learning about how best to have both genders stationed together in a war zone?
3: I mean, I don't know if you were on ground or whether you were just on a ship, but we pretty quickly had the ability to put people in actual housing. I mean, you stayed in tents in Kuwait. You know, the frustration about that is where you're segregating by gender and so that meant that my entire unit all the guys all stayed in one tent uh when you're in kuwait but then the women it would be a bunch of different units who were all in the same tent and so i think one of the hard things about that is you become close of course with the women in your unit who are being segregated in that way but you there's a part of like the fraternal experience that you're missing that is happening in the male tent of your entire unit you know
2: since serving with multiple deployments to Iraq, she's been committed to tackling the thorny issues that face active duty and former service members. We'll dive back into our interview now, where she describes the military experience from a woman's perspective, and hear how her experiences shape the work she's doing today.
3: You know, I think the thing that I have the sort of clearest thought and perspective on is sort of how, how culture change has happened and needed to happen over time. I mean, there's a lot of when I look back, the language that was allowed to be used sort of out in the open, you know, calling certain women's service members barracks whores, for example, um, you know, and then it even strays into the LGBTQ community as well. Um, the type of language that was, you know, free flowing kind of in military culture, I think. You know, there's probably pockets where it it still needs to improve a little bit more, but I think there's more awareness around all of that. And I think, you know, feeling more supported by the culture, I think, is, is the first step. And then the sort of logistical things that you're talking about kind of flow behind it, you know? when you have a basic acknowledgement that that like we want to support all of our service members the same way, we want them to feel that they're all on the same footing. And once you achieve that kind of, you know, cultural imperative, I think, you know, all of the other I's and T's that needed to be, you know, dotted and crossed to make sure that we were fulfilling kind of that intense, I think, come behind. But, you know, to to your point, I mean, we've had to, to adapt even in the veteran space too. There were male prosthetics when women were first coming back from from war. We've improved in that regard, but I feel bad for the woman who got part of her leg blown off and had to use a male prosthetic until they figured out how to fit her better, you know, through the VA at least.
2: Roger that. And I appreciate you being able to dive into the cultural aspect of it too, because that's that as you'd said is key. You know, we need to learn how to be around each other. And for years and years and years, because we weren't mixed, that didn't exist. And 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 I'm hoping on an evolutionary scale that that not only the military, but Americans learn how to play better in a sandbox where we're all together, different types, different colors, different creeds. It speaks volumes to your previous work, actually, which you've mentioned at the top of the interview. And that was with the V.A. motto, even talking about that famous quote from Abraham Lincoln. Uh, from the second inaugural address uh, shortly before the end of the civil war um, noted on a plaque just outside the VA doors there at the building in Washington, DC. It says to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan. And I know back when you were executive director of IAVA, as you'd mentioned, you were the face of that um, adjusting that motto to be more inclusive to, to, to really include the female experience, which contributes so heavily in the military. Share with me a little bit about where that journey took you, where we are with it and your thoughts, you know, going forward on the VA's motto and uh, the need to have it adjusted.
3: So women veterans are commonly characterized as invisible veterans. Targeting the motto, which was sort of the centerpiece of our she who born the battle campaign was less about a set of words on a plaque and more about how they said everything about how women veterans feel like the VA sees them and America sees them. Targeting the motto also helped us uh, basically change hearts and minds because as there was resistance to the motto change, I think a lot of politicians especially really opened up their eyes to the women veterans experience. Thankfully uh, that campaign with that being its centerpiece helped great advancements through the Deborah Samson Act um, to help improve services at the VA. Um, I think having that conversation and a bold, very clear conversation around the motto created the political will to really get services improvements. The fight to change the motto still exists. And I think for people who, you know, tell so you candidly feel it's, it's a little frustrating to have people like, you know, throw up the middle finger at that fight, because at the end of the day, if VA leadership is going to dig in their heels on a motto that literally excludes members of the veteran community, that says everything about the tone that they're setting at the top. And as you know, um, and as corporate American CEOs know, uh, the tone you set at the top is everything. If you can't set the right tone at the top, then it doesn't matter if we have more improved services at the VA, but the, women don't feel comfortable going there or they don't feel like they're on equal footing with the other veterans when they walk in there and that the VA isn't saying from the top down that this is the place, you know, that is as welcoming of male veterans as it is of women veterans, then are women even going to go to the VA to access those those services that, you know, taxpayers are paying for and that politicians have fought so hard for, you know. Um, And so I, I really hope we do have a change in the motto soon, because, again, it's not just about the words. It's about the signal that it sends that women veterans are seen. They are seen as equals to male veterans and that they will be equally supported by the VA. And oh, by the way, I don't think, you know, there's still a recognition problem among the American public, too, when people think of a veteran, when they close their eyes and think of a veteran, they don't think of somebody who looks like me. Point blank. But I can't ask the American people to better recognize women veterans if the VA doesn't take the lead. So the VA needs to move first and then hopefully, you know, culturally across America over time, especially with, with so many more women um, in uniform ascending into leadership positions, we can change the way that America sees as veterans.
2: I guess I didn't follow the scorecard closely enough because, because I've seen this discussion over the years. Gosh, you've been at this for years now and, um, discussing the VA motto. Yep. I did. I was unaware that, that, that it still has not been changed. In fact, just, just moments before we logged on here, I actually Googled VA motto mm-hmm. and the Google search return does not include the words he who born the battle. It mm-hmm. says they. But I was just in DC, you know, a few weeks ago, walked past the VA building and, and, and yeah, you can see that, that in the brass plaque, it still quotes Abraham Lincoln's original words, which were he who born the battle. Does changing the motto, is it necessary to change the motto for women to receive better services? If they did, really start to address the needs of women veterans. And they did start to really make great strides at making VA facilities comfortable for women to use and master the ability to give services the way they need them. Would a motto matter to a veteran if they were doing all the other things properly?
3: Well, I can tell you that women veterans do feel like a change would be meaningful. Um, I've actually been surprised after, you know, we chose that direction in terms of, like, how we were focusing the campaign, um, how meaningful the pursuit has been to so many women veterans. Um, You know, it's rumored that the change may be coming. So that might be why when you're Googling, I don't know if VA behind the scenes is getting prepared for it. Um, Still hasn't changed, at least not on the bronze plaque outside the VA, as you noted. But again, the service is being there doesn't mean anything if women veterans aren't feeling welcomed in the VA. I think there are some women who probably feel welcomed at some VAs, et cetera, but they're also, I'll give you, you know, I'll speak from personal experience. I am a member, uh, excuse me, a patient at the Durham, North Carolina VA. The women's clinic there, you have to get buzzed into. You know, why do you think that is, Phil? (laughs) So, you know, if, if women veterans are feeling unsafe at the VA to the extent that the Durham VA puts the women's clinic behind a locked door. I think that some some progress needs to happen in terms of the culture inside that VA. And again, I'm going to repeat myself here, but the culture can't be changed unless change happens at the top. And that's what the motto fight is all about. So people who want to like lock in on like us going about the motto, like honestly, it really me off because it, it, it can't happen if it's not happening from top down. And that will send a huge message, not just to women veterans, but to, to employees of the VA that change needs to happen and we are not doing right by our women veterans in many uh corners of the va when we can do better um it will probably still take leadership after a va motto change but that seems like a really great step in the right direction
2: well said and i appreciate you letting me get a little deeper into that because these are nuances that maybe i can't even understand or i don't appreciate initially because it's actually a a layer of detail that I don't often get to because I just look at it from the surface. I look at it as it's a phrase, it's history. It's what he said. Who cares? Let's just make sure everybody gets hooked up with the best healthcare. Really, really am glad that you've taken the time to dive into the details with me. Thank you, Allison. I guess
3: the only thing I'd say in closing on this particular issue is I would maybe be more open to the semantics, you know, feedback, Prior to when we launched the campaign, I've become more determined to have the motto change after we launched the campaign because of the amount of resistance we we got around such what feels like such a common sense idea. And so it actually, I mentioned this before, it actually was a catalyst to get women veterans more support and care because people realized how much the game was rigged or the stack was against it, uh, excuse me, the deck was stacked against us based on the, the, crazy amount of resistance that happened for what felt like such a, a layup of an idea, like, Oh, let's update the motto, you know? (laughs) So I'm happy that it has allowed us to have a valuable conversation, even if it's garnered resistance, because I think what it's done is elevated the conversation about the women veteran experience. And that extends from both healthcare to, as we've mentioned beforehand, recognition and the culture, whether it's in America or the VA itself, and, and how it
2: supports them or lack thereof. Right on. And I'll leave you with this uh, Google search later today. And as I'd mentioned earlier, this might, this might make you feel really good about the momentum that you've already created. Uh, Google search, what is the VA's mission statement? And you'll see a picture of Secretary Dennis McDonough there. And it says, our mission as the Department of Veterans Affairs is to care for those who shall have borne the battle and for their families, caregivers. survivors. So it appears at least according to the Googles that, uh, you know, they've taken one step to update what they are calling their mission statement. And you have to see that expanded and actually replace the plaques on the walls and and, and from the top down and that they do recognize the woman veteran. Uh, That's just one of the many things that you've worked towards as far as advocacy for veterans. You are now the CEO of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Tell me more about what's on your agenda for 23 now. What other initiatives are you looking at? I know IAVAs in the trenches of legislation for all of us, and they were vital to the PACT Act passage last year with burn pits and toxic exposures. What's on the horizon for this year?
3: So I think one issue that is going to be a continuation uh, in terms of, you know, a fight that didn't. That wasn't as successful in the last Congress that will be need to be fought again in this Congress is around getting, um, Afghanistan interpreters, our allies here in the, U- the U.S. to get them visas, um, to get them out of Taliban controlled Afghanistan where they're being hunted and, and targeted. You know, this is in many ways an immigration issue, but from the veterans experience, uh, there are many veterans who are very connected, feel like they have, they were the ones who promised their interpreters, that if they helped them out, some veterans even saying that their interpreters in a firefight saved their lives when they had to duck and cover and picked up their weapons and were literally in the fight with American troops. Um, these same, you know, interpreters are now fearing for their lives because they helped U.S. troops. Veterans are being contacted via WhatsApp and emails about this as well. And so it's a very emotional issue for many vets. Um, in the sense that they feel like they were the ones who made the promise for the Americans that, like, if they helped us out, that we'd help them out. Um, And and with people who they consider as much battle buddies as uh, American troops who served alongside them. So that's a long way to say that um, I think there's going to be continued interest by not just IAVA, but the veteran community to right that wrong um, after our hasty pullout in 2021. Um, It has been... It's created a lot of angst among veterans. I think there are a lot of veterans who are uh, experiencing moral injury as a result. Um, And there are many people who I think aren't going to be able to sleep well at night until we fix this, Uh, many among the veterans community. And so that's going to continue to be a high issue. I think in that same vein, there's a lot of activity on Capitol Hill around both the Afghanistan war with the bipartisan commission being stood up and hearings looking into the exit. And I think that that is going to be Something of interest to our members going forward, you know, litigating the, the how and why we both fought our war and or rejiggered our mission along the way for twenty years, uh, and then, you know, taking a close look at how we left and what that looks like and what additional fallout um, from our departure that needs to be cleaned up. Um, again, getting our allies back being one of those one of those factors. I think. A big area of interest for our members is getting the VA open to alternative therapies. Many veterans know not only um, somebody who is addicted to opioids, but I think, I think actually a lot of Americans are a little over pharma these days. And, you know, at a certain point when you're being prescribed pills after pills after pills, um, I think people want to be open to a new approach. And there are veterans who are having a a um, great experience managing their PTSD or their pain, chronic pain by using cannabis, especially in States where it's legal now in the United States. Um, so I think being able to uh, have the federal government be open to not only changing how it views cannabis, but at a minimum researching if, if this is, can be a, a therapy where somebody can both treat their conditions, but not be medicated all the time, I think is of great interest to folks who are, again, dealing with PTSD, chronic pain from their service, or TBIs. Alternative therapies, um, you know, it also includes acupuncture, which the VA has come a long way on, but uh, there is an increasing amount of research around using psychedelics. You know, using alternative therapies to manage PTSD is one thing, but when you're starting to see research through psychedelic therapy where people are being able to heal from PTSD, I listened to a New York Times Daily podcast recently, and if you didn't hear it, you should check it out. But in a study they cited in there, two-thirds of the veterans who used MDMA, I think it was, um, assisted therapy, healed from their PTSD. That is like, if we can heal people from PTSD, like, why wouldn't we want to study and or be open to using psychedelics? I understand The stigma from the past, um, especially you know, with older generations. But I think our generation is ready to explore some of these new areas, Um, and I think that that's a place where IEVA can uniquely lead as well, because you know our generation is just in a very different place on this kind of stuff than other generations. So I'm really excited to kind of explore not only what more can be done through you know advocacy on Capitol Hill, but what more research we can do here, Uh, because if this if there's some there there. I don't know why we wouldn't want to get veterans access to this care. It it just doesn't make sense to me. And I'm happy to take on anybody who wants to fight us on that. Um, The the last thing I would say, just as I sort of, you know, I'm still just stepping into the CEO role, so you'll have to stay tuned on more initiatives. But um, I think that this is a really exciting time for the post-9-11 generation of veterans. Post-9-11 veterans are ascendant in America today. You see them in governorships like Westmore, recently being elected as Maryland's governor. You have Mike Gallagher leading hearings on the Afghanistan war in Congress. We have startup founders who are post-9-11 vets who have already sold off their companies out there in the world. And so this is a, a time, as IEVA approaches its 20th anniversary next year, I think the next 20 years for our generation of veterans are really exciting. And As much as IABA has been successful talking about what veterans need or righting wrongs of veterans and, and, you know, focusing on injustices out there, I think we have a really awesome story to tell about how vets are rising in our country and leading and doing incredible things. And that the post-9-11 generation of veterans are who Americans who are struggling with the time that we're in can look to to lead us forward.
2: Very cool. I got about 10 different sound bites out of that reply, but I can't thank you enough. And I can't agree with you enough about how the future looks bright because veterans are involved. And I really agree with you that the changes we can make, the mental health things that we are going to address in the veteran community will pave the way for this, these alternative treatments to benefit all Americans forever forward. So uh it is a damn exciting time to be on board for this ride. And, I look forward to having you back many, many more times again. Former Army Captain Allison Jaslow, now CEO of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Always got a sweet spot in the guest chair here on this show. Thank you. Look
3: forward to coming back, Bill. Thank you.
2: Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs. And today, our guests are women veterans that are leaders in many walks of life. Army Reserve Lieutenant Colonel Lisa Jaster is a soldier, an engineer, and a trailblazer, one of only three women to graduate from the United States Army Ranger course, one of the most difficult combat training courses in the world, and one of the Army's most elite units. She's the author of Delete the Adjective, a soldier's adventure in ranger school, and she speaks about how most people limit themselves to their labels, They embrace barriers that are placed upon them by society. In our conversation, she spoke about succeeding as a soldier, a leader, and a mom.
1: Well, obviously, I think I've learned and matured a ton by being a parent, just by uh, the communication discussion, is understanding that not everybody just takes orders. Um, I think part of it, too, though, is understanding that the person on the other side is, of any conversation when you're a leader, also has some baggage, and as a young lieutenant especially, um, I had the, the honor and privilege and also the, the task of deploying both to Afghanistan and Iraq right during the initial deployment. I was a young lieutenant. I had nothing at home. Um, I had you know a loving family, parents, brothers, sisters, et cetera, but I didn't have children or a spouse. So leaving was easy and we were going to fight America's wars and go kill bad guys or, you know, however you give that speech to yourself when you're in your twenties. And I didn't understand my soldiers who were doubting whether or not they should deploy. I didn't, I didn't gather that. And I had, I had these perfect silos and then I married a fellow service member who also understood the importance of service. So he, He didn't pull on me like a lot of other spouses do. He, he, to this day, will say when it's my time to go training, hey, it's time to leave Lisa at home and and go be Lieutenant Colonel Jaster, which makes life super easy for me. But not everybody can do that. So again, to be able to speak the way my audience needs to hear me, I need to understand those blurry lines. But then I also found that I could connect with people a lot better If I did blur those lines, I'm also more efficient. My children don't disappear from 0800 to 1700 every day. They still exist. So if I'm going to address family issues during the day, I have to be able to address work issues at night. I've found that being able to pull one into the other has helped me understand the people around me, but it has also helped me be more efficient and more fluid and my kids understand what's going on our children are have no idea that some of the things we do are weird, that physical fitness being part of every day, you know, that's, that's important to me for whatever reason it's important to me, but it's also important to my military job. My kids don't know that um, most children get woken up in the morning and told to do pull-ups before they eat breakfast.
2: That's awesome. And again, you do it with all three of the C's too. You communicate that, you allow for communication about personal life during work hours and work life during personal hours, and you're consistent about it uh, with the kids and with your colleagues. I mean, that is vital. Uh, The last thing is something that I started to talk to you with off the mic here, and I found it really powerful. But you have a hashtag. Uh, It's called hashtag delete the adjective. And what I thought might just be something uh, for a woman. When I saw your video and you said something about looking good for your age, and I thought, you know what? That's true for a man or a woman. We don't Mm -hmm. just want to look good for our age. We don't just want a qualifier before something. We don't just want to be an adjective. Expand on that for me because I thought it was powerful for both women and for men to hear.
1: So a lot of the negative feedback I get about delete the adjective is, it comes off sounding like I don't want to celebrate differences. And I do think it's great. It's great to be the first anything to do something, the first woman, the first reservist, the first African-American. Those things are great and they should be celebrated, but it shouldn't define you because what I found personally, and this was when I was very young, this was middle school time when people would say oh you're strong for a girl it it's it's one of those things for whatever reason it was a burr under my saddle at 12 and at 32 at 42 it's still a burr under my saddle i don't want to be strong for a woman i what i hear when somebody says you're strong for a woman is but you're weak in comparison to the other 50 percent of the population and and i've always thought especially in the military that by looking at making a woman's standard or a male standard or comparing me, again, specifically in the military and saying you're strong for a woman, that puts me in a category where I can't compete against males. Well, I would never pick a doctor and say, ooh, I want her to work for me because she's smart for a woman. And because physical fitness and strength is part of our job in the military, I didn't want to be qualified that way. I just wanted to be capable and competent and able to do my job and have people respect me for being able to do my job. And again, I found it very undermining to be segregated out. And the other thing with that is, uh, especially with regards to age, I don't want to age out of the program. I want to stay relevant. Um, My entire family does Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I was the I was the last who really joined um, and it was, again, I blame my husband for a lot of stuff and I'm going to blame him for this too. <laughs> he, he brought me into it because at the time I had started doing CrossFit and I was locally I was very competitive, not on a big stage at all, but I started to feel the age difference and part of it was by the time you have two children, by the time you have a, a, a real job, I can't spend six hours in the gym every day training for competitions. So some of it might have been age, but um, you know a lot of it is just the life you have in your 30s versus the life you have in your 20s. And he pulled me into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and started talking to me about the benefits of it because it's a very technical sport. So you, you can be good even though you're the oldest, smallest female in the room because it's a skill set. So again, it becomes this activity where I'm not good for my age. Every once in a while, I'm just good. And it's a physical sport. It's a mental sport. It's a it's knowledge based. It's playing chess with your your physical prowess. You know, jujitsu is one of those things that has helped me with the delete the adjective. Yes, if I have a twenty year old uh, college wrestler who's one hundred and eighty pounds come in, he's probably going to crush me. But every once in a while, I can slip my arm around his neck and choke him because I've learned, I've grown, grown. I've it's not just age-based or gender-based. It's, it's kind of a, a little bit more. Um, the adjectives get deleted. It's a, a little more of an equalizer. So I don't want to be just put in some sort of category based on my physique or, or based on kind of don't judge a book by its cover.
2: And with that, Lieutenant Colonel Lisa Jaster gives us the perfect words to summarize our salute to Women's History Month, veteran style. You can check out our latest book, Delete the Adjective, A Soldier's Adventure in Ranger School at DeleteTheAdjective.com. And of course, everywhere books are sold. And you can find the full interviews with today's guests everywhere you get podcasts. Just search Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs on Twitter at philbriggsvet, And I'll be back again next week with more great veteran guests sharing their inspiring stories when CBS Eye on Veterans returns.
1: I would never pick a doctor and say, ooh, I want her to work for me because she's smart for a woman. And because physical fitness and strength is part of our job in the military, I didn't want to be qualified that way. I just wanted to be capable and competent and able to do my job and have people respect me for being able to do my job.
2: All right, so that does it for this week's show. Thank you for listening. Now, we'd love to hear from you. So follow us on Twitter at IonVeterans, or you can reach me at PhilBriggsVet. I'm always down to get your hot takes and spicy memes, and I'd love to talk to you every week. So please, like and subscribe. Hell, even give us a review of the show, because the comments and reviews really help us tailor the show to you. Again, I'm Phil Briggs, Navy veteran and reporter with ConnectingVets.com in Washington, D.C. And I look forward to talking to you again on another episode of CBS Audio's Eye on Veterans.
0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the
3: Money Watch podcast.